1: Live. Hello, this is Michael Adams from Nothing But The Truth. It's uh, March the 19th, 2015, and uh, we're going to do another study on Revelation 13. Um, we're going to be listening to a gentleman by the name of Steve Gregg, or Greg, mm-hmm. a man who spent a lot of time studying the Bible, researching the Bible, has some pretty good understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, someone who spent a heck of a lot more time than I have, or anybody else on this has ever been on this show as far as researching uh, prophecy and revelations. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, and yes, I call it a brilliant lecture, and I do feel that it is. He has some very valid points. Uh, what I do like about what he brought up was that the two beasts in Revelation, the first one being a political power, the second one being a religious power, certainly goes in line with what the, most of the uh, reformers felt and as, as those who are in line with historicism. Um a question about a few things about what he sees as far as the woman of the horn in Revelation. He feels it's not necessarily normal Catholic Church. And maybe in some ways he's right. Uh, what is important is the symbology that he brings up in Revelation 13 is the marriage of church and state, and how that has been a false religion in the, in the state, and how that has been throughout the time, so, uh, basically, since the apostles uh, of the persecuting force of God's people. And that, uh, you know, uh, when will look at the world as a whole, you know, uh, in this show we spend a lot of time in the, the tail of the donkey, the donkey being the Roman Catholic Church, the papacy in particular, but uh, if we look at the world as a whole, there's many false churches, many false religions, and states and that combination that have persecuted the saints. Um, whether it was in China and what was going on there with uh, the governments of Confucianism or Buddhism, um, Hinduism if we look—is Islam, Islamic states now they persecute the saints? Is it a mistake on our part to lay everything on the Roman Church, and the Papacy? Now, certainly, if we look at it, um, you know, we look at uh, Rome and its behavior, all its false, all of its daughter churches. But are we being too narrow-minded in this whole picture? It's worthy of discussion. It's worthy of looking at. I know that it uh, is another screwball thrown into the mix, if you will, uh, as far as uh, uh, what has been said on this show. And many of the things that have been said on the show Including for myself, I've uh, been things that have been absolute statements. Um, but the more and more one looks at things, uh, the more and more one realizes how they have to keep on looking. And that the moment you think you got it figured out, God reminds you that you don't got to figure it out. Now, if we look at a guy like Steve Gregg, he has spent a lifetime researching, st- uh, uh, studying theology. Um, if you wanted to know more about him and his perspective of things, uh, he has he's part of that narrowpath.com. Uh, he has abandoned future dispensationalism. He used to be one of those for a very long time. And I see a man who's still growing and trying to understand things. I admire that actually. Uh, I have been around people who are absolutely emphatic, they have the answer, and I know they don't. <laughs> I know they don't because they haven't even spent even a fraction of the amount of time studying, whether it's the book of Revelation, the scriptures, as a man like Steve, Steve Gregg. Now, do I put him up on some great pedestal and make him think he's perfect? No, I think that you'll see in this video that he is flawless, like everybody else, and doesn't have all the answers. But I think he makes some very convincing arguments about Revelation 13 and how it has something to do with the church and state. And certainly, there's some very rational, logical arguments that he presents that broadens one's horizon in understanding Revelation 13. And he's a fine example as well of somebody who has seriously studied Scripture. And one of the things that I think that happens in seriously studying the Scriptures is a degree of humility that should happen And that is that uh, what once thought was absolutely the truth turns out to be maybe not so. Um, I'm not doing this to confuse anybody. Um, You certainly could hold on to your convictions. Um, But for me and for myself, for I, I am looking for the truth And I recognize what that means (laughs) is that I always have to uh, question do I have the truth? And if I have the truth, it will stand uh, on its two legs and will not budge, at least not break. So anyways, I, I really like what Steve has done here. I'm thinking about looking into more of it. You know, I was talking about in the, um, the Christian Doctrines and Theology about actually reading some of the stuff <laughs> Excuse me, from and, um, the com but I'm thinking about maybe doing something a little different with that. i think about maybe looking into Steve's research on Revelation and seeing if it's worthy of actually sharing. But I do like this. I think... He's one more example of somebody else who realizes that the second beast in Revelation 13 has nothing to do with the United States government, but has to do with false religion, uh, with religion in itself, and that the first beast represents uh, a political system. Now, we look at the fourth and final beast is the Roman Empire based on the scripture. And I, uh, he hasn't quite got to the point there of embracing that 100%. And I understand why think that might be, because if you look at the world, you look how it's all divvied up by false religions, whether uh, it controlled by uh, Rome or not, uh, which it seems that this case, the Roman Catholic Church has a very strong hold on most of these relations, but are they absolutely in control? I don't know. Um, Neither do you. (laughs) We could only uh, um, just speculate based on imagery that we've seen and certain reports that other people have seen, but most of those reports actually come from outsiders, so we do not know 100% for sure that Rome is absolutely in control of, say, Islam. We don't know that. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of these things you don't know until after the fact. We look at the ecumenical movement. We look at what's going on. We see the imagery, and we see all these um, Islamic leaders going to Rome and bowing down. But, um, and it's a logical... uh, Assumptions to deduce that Rome has control or at least strong influence, but do we know? So, but anyways, I like what this man's done. First of all, I respect the fact that the man has spent many, many, many years studying this, which is not, I can't claim that. Nobody who's ever been on the show can claim that. Nobody. Um, And, you know, I've had some pretty smart and brilliant people on my show, but if they were honest, they would admit, along with me, that they they didn't. They have not spent years and years studying the Bible and researching it. Uh, This man has. And can we deal with the fact that a fellow brother of Christ has a little different approach to Revelation 13? Our revelations or the Bible in general. What is the important issues here? Um, I like what he did, so I'm hoping that you like it too. I think he does a pretty good job, and so we're going to listen to what he has to say about the two beasts and revelations. How he kind of well he where he's coming from where he's at. I like his humility in admitting that you know one time he was a future dispensationalist. And he is changing. And I imagine as time goes on, his, his perspective will change too. Even more. Um, just as mine will. I'm right now very solidly, firmly convinced that the fourth and final beast is Rome. That it is talking about Rome. And that the second beast is the Roman Catholic Church. But he has a little bit of a different spin on things. And... But regardless of the disagreements, there are some points that he has are worthy of being heard. <clears throat> and the more important thing, I think, when it comes to chapter 13, is what is the mark of the beast? What are the two uh, beast systems? What do they truly represent? And the recognition that revelation is symbolic, highly symbolic, Now, he's a partial uh, preterist, too, so he'll say things, that you know, a lot of it. Obviously, he's hinting on the fact that Revelations was written prior to 90 A.D. or 96 A.D. And in the day, he could be right. The problem is we really don't have any definitive of what date it is. We're making the best guess of when it was written. Was it 96 A.D.? Could it have been prior to 70 A.D.? We probably will never know that answer until we can meet up with our Lord and Savior and he can answer these questions. In the meantime, what we can do is just our best ability, uh, our, our, based on our best abilities and the information that we have, and dating and that, uh, come to a, the best, yeah, best conclusions that we can make. And once again, when it comes to history and all that, because it's been messed with, because it has been done, in truth uh accurately 100, well, you know hundred percently documented, and that a lot of the, the information that we could have has been lost and you could blame a lot of you can blame that in the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Empire with all the burning of uh <coughs> excuse me uh papyrus and scrolls, but you can also blame Islam for that you can blame the Jews for that you can blame a lot of different organizations. Um, who've done this and behaved this way. So, with that, let's get over there and let's get this started. Um, Well, you know, once again, the whole idea here is that, you know, in order to have a more fuller, uh, hopefully a more complete picture of the book of Revelation, um, is that, you know, we can... um, hear from others who really have spent a lot of time doing the research, doing the study, being honest with the fact that we have not, and even then realizing that even they have questions. Now, this comes back to this whole uh, secondary, uh, non-essential doctrines. Once again, Putting the priority where it should be, the essential doctrines, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he um, paid for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead, that he is uh, divinity, divinity, that he is God, he is part of the Godhead, he is part of the, uh, as they call the trinity. <laughs> that the, uh, the Bible is all about Him, and that, that salvation by grace in Jesus Christ is the answer, um, and things like that matter. You know, these are the issues that, as true Christians, we need to be united with. <clears throat> and the secondary, non-essential doctrines, are seems to be the things that divide us, and reaching uh, a consensus of humility and realizing that we don't have all the answers. Not one group, not one man. Why God made it this way? The only thing I can conjecture and speculate is because he wanted us to focus on the more important thing, that is who Jesus Christ is, what he's done for us. Now saying that, is this a waste of time? I don't think so. I think these are uh, great opportunities to grow and learn, and to see what we're up against, who the enemy is, and what we're not supposed to do. So it'd be interesting also his take on the mark of the beast, which is very similar to a lot of folks who say that, you know, it has to do more of a spiritual nature, more about personal actions and that kind of thing than it has anything to do with a literal mark, (laughs) excuse me. So anyways, I'm going to, before I cough up on my... My lungs here. I don't know what's going on with that. So, anyways, here, um, Revelations 13. Who is the beast, and what does 666? um let me get here. So, let's try this again. Revelations 13, Part One. Who is the beast, and what does 66 stand for? By Steve Gregg. All right. <laughs>
0: famous chapter about the beasts, we often think of the beast as the main character of Revelation, and it is, but actually there are two beasts in this chapter, and there have been many, obviously, uh, speculations about the identity of the beast, we will have to see if we can sort through the options and find an answer from Scripture itself. Let me read the whole chapter. It doesn't take long to read the whole chapter, and it's necessary. Here and I, I would just read uh, the first part, first ten verses, which are about the first beast, and hold off part of the second. But the problem is, the first beast's identity is concealed in some of the things that are said in the latter half of the chapter. After we are introduced to the second beast, we get back to the information about the first, which we need to take into our consideration. Right from the beginning, when we're trying to identify who the beast is, or what the beast is, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man His number is 666. Now the beasts, what are they? Who are they? When are they? Uh, Of course the most popular view that's uh, popularized in Christian movies and popular novels and things like that and fiction, uh, prophecy fiction and so forth in, in the popular evangelical culture is that the beast Is called the Antichrist Now the word Antichrist Is not found anywhere in the book of Revelation And therefore the beast is not referred to by that name Actually the word Antichrist Is found either in the book of Daniel In the Olive Discourse In any of the epistles of Paul Nor in the book of Revelation The only place the word Antichrist is found Is uh, in the short epistles Of John First John mentions the Antichrist twice And uh, Second John once And in 1 John, we simply are told that whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ, the same is Antichrist. So anyone who denies Jesus being the Christ is Antichrist, and therefore Antichrist is generic, not reference to an individual. So the Bible nowhere speaks, never uses the term Antichrist to speak of one particular individual. Nonetheless, uh, if this beast is persecuting uh, the saints, and blaspheming God and his tabernacle those who dwell in heaven, then he certainly would be against Christ and therefore could qualify as antichrist but to call the beast the antichrist is misleading. It's to use the word antichrist in a sense that the Bible never uses. It's better simply to go with what it says here, the beast. Now, in the popular parlance, the beast is a future Antichrist will arise in the uh, tribulation period And will continue for three and a half years To be uh, a menace to the world And especially to the Christians The Antichrist's career has been mapped out for us In many popular novels and movies uh, None of which follow the Bible very closely And uh, most of which is entirely speculation Nonetheless, I think Even among non-Christians The idea of a future beast or future antichrist and the number 666 is a fairly common uh, concept in our culture of a future big brother type of uh, leader, somebody who is a dictator, a tyrant, who rules over the whole world politically. And the second beast is generally understood to be a religious leader because in the later references to this second beast in Revelation, he is always referred to as the false prophet. Here we don't have the expression false prophet used, it's just another beast. But uh, we do find him referred to as the false prophet. Uh, For example, in chapter 16, verse 13, it says, and I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And likewise, in chapter 19, at the end of the book, in verse 20 it says, in chapter 19, in verse 20, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. So it's very clear, the false prophet is the same one as the second beast because we are told in, uh, in chapter 13, verse 13, uh, well, actually the whole section here, but in the presence or in the sight of the first beast, verse 14, the second beast deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. So this second beast is the one called the false prophet, who works signs in the presence of the first beast. Likewise, in chapter 20 of Revelation, in verse 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. So three times this second beast is called the false prophet. Being a prophet suggests religious in nature. And the beast himself, the first beast, is almost always regarded to be a political figure. So we have a political and a religious imagery here. So one of the most popular scenarios for the, uh, the dispensational view is that after the church is raptured, if one believes in a pre-tribulation rapture, or even if one believes in the mid-tribulation rapture, uh, this beast, this political leader, will rise. Many people say he will rise out of a ten-nation confederacy in Europe. Where do they get that? Well, there's no reference to a ten-nation confederacy in Europe. However, this beast does have ten horns. And we are told in chapter 17 that the ten horns, chapter 17, verse 16, the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the highlight, make her desolate. Uh, I I guess uh, I should have looked earlier here. Uh, I get in verse 12, 17, 12, and the 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they received authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So 10 kings, 10 horns, um, many believe this is to be associated with the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in Daniel chapter two, the head of gold, a chest of silver, a belly of bronze, legs of iron, and feet with a mixture of iron and clay. And many have suggested that the feet represents a revived Roman Empire in the end times. And since it's a human image, it is assumed that it has 10 toes. And therefore the 10 toes are thought to be the 10 nations represented here by the 10 horns that make up a last day's Confederacy in Europe in the end times, what many call a revived Roman Empire. This is a popular view of the dispensations. On their view, the Antichrist makes a covenant, actually at the beginning of the tribulation, a seven-year pact with uh, Israel, which allows them to rebuild their temple. But in the middle of that seven years, in the middle of the tribulation, he breaks his promise. And then he shows himself be the monster that he really is. And he persecutes the Jews. Um, he sets up an image of himself in the temple, which some people identify as the abomination of desolation. I'm assuming that anyone who's been an evangelical for very long and has read books or heard preachers on the radio is familiar with most of what I just described. None of it is in the Bible. There's no reference to an antichrist making uh, a seven-year covenant with anybody. There's no reference to an antichrist setting up an image of himself in the temple, ever. No reference in the Bible at all to that. Now, where do they get that? The idea of a seven-year covenant comes from Daniel chapter uh, 9 and the 70 weeks of Daniel. We will not be looking back tonight. We don't have time. But uh, in the 70 weeks of Daniel, there is a, each week is seven years. And after 69 weeks, the Messiah is cut off. And then it says the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. But then it says, and he will make a covenant or, or confer the covenant with many for one week, meaning seven years. But in the midst of the week, he should cause the sacrifice and offerings to cease. This he, in Daniel 9, is thought to be the Antichrist by dispensational teachers. However, there is no reference to the Antichrist anywhere else in that chapter. Therefore, it would seem strange for the word he, a pronoun, to refer to somebody who has never been mentioned previously. He usually refers back to an antecedent noun and the antecedent noun in Daniel 9 is the Messiah. One only has to look and see there is no reference to an Antichrist in Daniel 9, but there is, prior to this word he, twice in the previous two verses the Messiah is mentioned. Therefore, the most natural understanding is the Messiah makes the covenant with many for seven years, which would be at the beginning of his ministry, but it says in the midst of the week, that's after three and a half years, he brings an end to the sacrificial system. That Jesus did, of course, when he died. His death brought an end to the sacrificial system, and therefore in the midst of the week he caused the sacrifice and and offerings to cease, that is, as a legitimate means of worshiping God. Now, therefore, there is no reference to an Antichrist in Daniel 9, or, or the only covenant of seven years mentioned is the one that the Messiah makes in Daniel 9. And what about this idea of setting up an image of himself in the temple, uh, rebuilt temple. Well, this is what the dispensations say is, the, uh, is what causes the sacrifice of the to cease. They believe the Antichrist has made the covenant for seven years, and in the middle of that week, three and a half years, he causes the sacrificial uh, practices to stop by defiling the temple as Antiochus Epiphanes did in 158 B.C. Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, uh, sacrificed a pig in the temple of, in Jerusalem, defiling it, and that brought an end temporarily to the sacrificial system until the Jews could overthrow Antiochus and rededicate the temple, which is what Hanukkah is all about. But the point is, there is no reference in the Bible to the beast setting up an image of himself in the temple. So where do they get that? There are two verses, two places, one in Second Thessalonians 2 and one in this chapter, that they merge, although the It's not not obvious that the two chapters are talking about the same person, nor about the same subject. In this chapter, we read, the second beast causes an image of the first beast to be made in verse 15. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the first beast, which he made in verse 14. And to require all people to worship the image of the beast. So, okay, we've got an image of the beast. And everybody's supposed to worship him. But there's no reference to a temple. There's no reference to Jerusalem. There's no reference to anything like that. We've got an image. For all we know, it might be in New York City or Rome or Zimbabwe. We don't know where the image is. But the image is created and everyone has to worship it. There's no reference to Jerusalem or the temple. However, if you turn over to Second Thessalonians, Chapter 2, we have Paul's discussion about somebody that he refers to as the son of perdition and the man of lawlessness. Now, dispensationalists identify this character with the Antichrist also. That is, dispensationalists believe that the man of lawlessness that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians 2 is also the first beast of Revelation 13. There's no obvious warrant for this identification. I guess that they have in common, and therefore one could say that. But, but there's really nothing in Second Thessalonians that ties the man of lawlessness with the beast of revelation. And in my opinion, they are not identical. But on the assumption that they are, it is said about the man of lawlessness that it says um, in verse 4, he imposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, Or that is worshipped So that he sits as God In the temple of God Showing himself that he is God It is this verse Combined with uh, chapter 13 And verse 14 of Revelation That causes people to say He's going to put an image of himself in the temple You've got an image, sure In chapter 13 of Revelation No temple though Here you have a temple, but no image Here the man sits himself In the temple of God no image is mentioned. Now, furthermore, this mention of the temple of God need not uh, imply that there is going to be a rebuilt Jewish temple. This uh, idea that the Jews are going to rebuild the temple and then and, and they're going to do so with the permission of a future Antichrist, and then he's going to betray them by putting his image in the temple, is all a fabrication come up with that kind of six verses on miscellaneous subjects into different places in a timeline That makes sense to some people. It made sense to me for many years. I taught it myself. That's why I'm able to teach it now, although I don't believe it. I know it like the back of my hand. I taught it for many years. That's what dispensationalists teach, and I was a dispensationalist for many years. But what happened is I decided to ask myself whether there was a biblical basis for any of these things. And when I looked for the actual basis, I was shocked to find how much assumption was being made and things are added. For example, like I said, Second Thessalonians doesn't mention anything about an image. It mentions a man sitting in the temple. No image is ever mentioned as being in a temple in the New Testament. However, we should understand too that when Paul uses the expression temple of God, he is not referring to a Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Paul uses the expression temple of God in two other places, He does not refer to the temple in Jerusalem when he uses that expression. Paul never referred to the Jewish temple as the temple of God. But he did refer to the temple of God elsewhere. Uh, 1 Corinthians, for example, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Who's you? Plural. The church. He also said in the church in verse 9, We are God's fellow workers. You, the church, are God's field. You are God's building. What kind of building? A temple. The church is being built up of living stones into a holy temple in the Lord, Paul said in Ephesians 2. And here he says, You, the church, are the temple of God. That's the same phrase he uses in 2 Thessalonians. Then in 2 Corinthians... Chapter 6, Second Corinthians 6, he says in verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. Now when he says the temple of God, it means you, the church. What does the temple of God have in agreement with? Idols. You are the temple of God. You're the temple of the living God, the church. So three times in Paul's writing, he uses the term temple of God. Twice, he clearly identifies the temple of God as the church. The other time, he does not say whether it's the church or something else. But it's already Paul's established usage to refer to the church as the temple of God. And therefore, to say that man of sin sits in the temple of God, coming from Paul as it does, would more likely mean he sits in the church than in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, which never is called a temple of God, and is never predicted to be rebuilt. Not in the New Testament, it is not. So, all the things we've been told, when you go looking for them in the Bible, are extremely difficult or impossible to find. In fact, the very suggestion that this beast is a future entity arising in the end times is extremely hard to, to justify especially in view of the fact that John told his readers that he's writing about things that must shortly come to pass. Of course, we did decide, at least I did in my teaching, and i shared with you, that chapters 11, 12, and 13, which contain references to this period of 42 months, or 1260 days, frequently repeated in those three chapters, that that refers to things through the entire age of the church. We deduce that partly from the fact that chapter 11 of Revelation, verse 2, says that the Gentiles will tread Jerusalem underfoot for 42 months. That's the same length of time the beast blasphemes here. Revelation 11:2. But we also cross-reference that with uh, Luke 21:23, where Jesus said Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So that the forty-two months appears to be shorthand for and symbolic for the times of the Gentiles, however long those may last. My suggestion, we won't go over it again, not the reasons again, we've done that more than once already in this series. I believe the forty-two months, so-called three and a half years, is a symbolic number. And what it refers to symbolically is the period from AD seventy when the when the temple in fact was destroyed. Until the end of the world, when the seventh trumpet sounds, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's my thesis, which you are welcome to reject in favor of a better one if you have one. But that is my position, and therefore the beast who blasphemes for 42 months would be some entity that endures the entire period of time that we're calling the church age or the times of the Gentiles, as Jesus referred to. This means that I don't agree with preterists on this either, although I, you know, I'm a partial preterist with reference to Revelation. I believe parts of the book of Revelation are about things that happened in A.D. 70. In fact, I think the majority of the book is on that subject. But the section in the middle that we're looking at now, I believe is a, is an exception. And it's looking at the longer view from 70 A.D. to the end of the world, and looking at features of that. So I don't like some people do, identify the beast with some character in the first century. I sort of do, but not exactly. Now, if that sounds waffly, let me, let me give you what I'm saying here. Let's look at the beast and see who he is, so that we can tell you why I, why I take the view I do. Chapter 13 begins, Now I stood on the sand of the sea. Now that's the, the King James and the New King James say, I. Uh, the Alexandrian text says, he, meaning the dragon who was last mentioned. Who in chapter 12, verse 17, had gone to make war with the woman and the rest of her seed, who had the testimony of Jesus and keep the commandments of God, that he, the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea and apparently beckoned this creature out of the sea to be an ally in his war against the saints. He beckons two allies, one from the sea, which is the first beast, the other from the land, which is the second beast, as verse eleven says, I then saw another beast coming up out of the earth. So you've got a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. These are allies of the dragon. They are thrown into the lake of fire together. The three of them have three evil spirits like frogs out of their mouths, and they work together in concert. So we have the, the dragon and his two tools that he uses. One of them, the first beast, one the second beast. The first one, political, and the second one, religious. Well, who are they or what are they? Now, we have some clues given to us by the fact that the beast that comes out of the sea here has seven heads and ten horns. Later, we will be told in chapter 17 that the seven heads are seven hills upon which the harlot sits, and that they are also seven kings, which is confusing because the seven heads do double duty as symbols of kings and of hills. But then, uh, or mountains, seven mountains, not hills. And then the 10 horns, they're 10 kings, so you got 17 kings all together here mixed together in this beast. Sounds like it's not just one governmental system, but uh, many, but it goes on to say, in verse two, the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Now these three beasts, uh, a bear, a leopard and a lion, and one with 10 horns are seen as separate beasts in Daniel chapter 7, and they come out of the sea also, like this beast does. If you look at Daniel chapter 7, the beginning of that chapter, Daniel 7.1 says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of the heaven were stirring on the great sea. That's interesting because back in Revelation 7:1, before the, the 144,000 sealed, it says, There was a command given to the four angels of the four winds to not blow on the sea or on the land or anything else, not to stir things up yet until the 144,000 had been sealed on their forehead. Now, verse 3 And the four great beasts came up out of the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion. In verse 5, suddenly another beast, the second, like a bear. In verse 6, after this, I looked and there was another, like a leopard. In verse 7, after this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, had huge giant teeth, and was devouring, etc., etc., and at the end of verse 7, it says he had ten horns. So we've got four different beasts. One's like a lion, one's like a bear, one's like a leopard, and one has ten horns. This beast in Revelation has all the features. He's like a leopard, he's got a feet like a bear, a mouth like a lion, and he's got ten horns. And throw into that seven heads too. This beast is symbolic, as are Daniel's beasts. But for what? Daniel's beasts, as we know, as we read on in the chapter, chapter 7 of Daniel, are seven beasts empires, I mean four empires, excuse me, uh, Daniel 7. Four successive empires, the first is Babylon, the second is generally believed by evangelical scholars as the Persian which conquered the Babylonian Empire. The third is the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great which conquered the Persian Empire. And then the fourth is the Roman Empire. So these four, beasts are four empires. Gentile empires, they come out of the sea, the sea seems to represent the Gentile world. So this piece looks like it's kind of a composite of all of them. And as such, I'm going to suggest that it represents any government, any Gentile nation, any political system, which embodies or, you know, is embodied an embodiment of the dragon, Satan, and persecutes the church at any time during the 42 months. We remember when we first saw the dragon in chapter 12. We were told that the dragon was fiery red, had seven heads and ten horns. This chapter 12, verse 3. The dragon, who is Satan, had seven heads and ten horns in the vision, and is red. This beast is also red. We're not told that in chapter 3. But we are told that in chapter 17, in verse 3, the same beast is described. Revelation seventeen three. He carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet, that's red, beast, which is full of uh, names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. This beast is the same color, same number of heads, same number of horns as the dragon. He's just the dragon with skin on. He's the dragon incarnated in a political system. To suggest the beast in Revelation is a man is rather strange because, first of all, none of the beasts in Daniel are a man. They're all systems. And this piece is a combination of all the systems, therefore representing, it would say, governments in general at any time that the devil incarnates himself into to persecute the church. There have been many. I believe that there are some today, of course. I believe that throughout the entire church age there are governments that persecute the church. As we speak, the Chinese and the North Korean governments still persecute the church. Communist governments did, uh, in general, in the 20th century. Muslim governments often persecuted the church. In the Middle Ages, many times the papal states persecuted people like Wycliffe and Huss and Luther, and others who wanted to follow the scripture instead of following the the papal church. And and the states were under the the control of popes and so forth, and so they persecuted the Waldenses and the Hussites and the others who were actually Christians. Actually, the saints of the time got persecuted by these countries. In John's day, the Roman Empire did, and one Roman emperor in particular, I believe, who was Nero. Now, when we find the number of the beasts mentioned as uh, 666, I believe this is an allusion to Nero. I've mentioned this before. He wants his readers to understand who the beast is that they will be dealing with. In verse 18, he says, Here's wisdom, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beasts. It's the number of a man. He assumes that his readers, is very clever, will be able to identify the beast from this number. It obviously was somebody contemporary with themselves, or else how could they expect to be wise enough to calculate? I mean, if it was Henry Kissinger or Jimmy Carter or Ronald Reagan or many, of the, many people who've been suggested to the Antichrist in our time, uh, how, would the, how would John's readers know how to calculate the number to get those names? You know? Uh, and obviously, John assumes that the beast that they are that is being identified by this number is contemporary with his readers, and if they're smart, they can figure out who he's talking about. Now, I believe the only figure, the only political leader in the first century that can reasonably have his name calculated out to 666 is Nero, uh, Caesar Nero. And these words are translated into Hebrew. The Hebrew letters calculate, or add up to 666. There have been many people in history, in modern times, that people have taken the letters of the names and found it to mean 666, but those don't live at the right time in history for this. This piece, whose number is 666, is living in the time of John and his listeners so they could figure out who he is. And the only person on the historical scene that, that this could fit, that I'm aware of, from any commentaries I've read, is Caesar Nero, and I believe it is him. I believe at the time of writing, the manifestation of the beast, the incarnation of Satan in a political system, was in Nero and his government. At other times, other persons and other governments are the current manifestation. The beast is a concept. The beast is a the, the idea of the devil using governmental power, demonically inspired, Satanically empowered, empowered To fight against the saints That is against the church To be part of the devil's warfare Against the church Nero was the man He was the emperor at the time Of this writing I believe And therefore he wanted his readers To identify who they're up against And we would have to identify By other features than the number 666 Because uh, because Mr. 666 isn't living today But this beast it says, had a head that was mortally wounded, but he lived. Now, this imagery, the idea of a head wound, a mortal head wound, but the beast lives, has sometimes given rise to the notion in popular fiction that the Antichrist will be uh, subject to a, a, an assassination attempt to receive a shot in the head, a bullet in the skull. This made a lot of people think at one time that John F. Kennedy was the Antichrist. I remember after John Kennedy was killed. Many uh, prophecy teachers suggested that he's not really dead, or if he is, he's going to come back, and everyone marvels because he's received oath, a fatal head wound, uh, and he'll come back. Uh, I know that the left-behind novels, although I have not read them, I've heard, they have an antichrist figure who gets, uh, I guess, assassinated or shot, and he recovers, and everyone marvels at that. This is the typical dispensational scenario. The beast is an individual man. He gets shot in the head. He, gets, he comes back to life, everyone marvels and worships him. However, that doesn't really fit what the imagery here is. We don't have any beast dying here and coming back. We have a beast that has seven heads. One of the heads gets a mortal head wound. That's got six good heads left. It doesn't die. There's no death of the beast in this. As a matter of fact, it specifically says at the end of verse 14 that the beast, it says he's the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived, not by bullets apparently, but by a sword. But though he was wounded, he lived on. He didn't die. Why would he? He only lost one of his seven heads. There's six more good heads to go. So the beast isn't an individual man who gets a head wound. It's a, a concept that one government goes down, but there's plenty of them where that came from. The devil raises up the government to persecute the saints. That government has its career, and then it eventually passes into history. It disappears, but it never. the beast never goes away. The beast reappears. Got many more heads to go. And I believe the number seven is symbolic. It's a symbolic number for perfection or completeness. The complete number of kings, the complete number of governments that will ever pursue the church is represented by these ten horns. And any of them might die, but it leaves plenty left where that came from. So this is the way I understand that imagery myself. Now he blasphemed, and it says in verse seven, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. The overcoming of the saints, I believe, is no doubt at the end of his career because that resembles chapter 11 and the two witnesses who I identified as the church. And in chapter 11, verse 7 says that when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Now, now he's the same beast, I believe, who makes war uh, here with them. He makes war with them and he overcomes them. Okay, so a he's Fighting against the church, able to overcome them briefly at the end of church history, but not permanently because they rise from the dead and are ascended into heaven in in the rapture eventually.
1: Okay, a little pause here between part one and part two. Uh, A few comments. First of all, when I look at what he's saying, uh, as far as starting from Nero all the way through to the second coming of Christ, this institution, this final B system would be based on well I see it, and what the Bible says is that the Roman Empire, and if we look at all major political systems, or countries and their political systems, they're all based on Roman uh, canon law, they're all based uh, and look an awful lot like what you would find from uh, the Roman system, political system. That would include even places like China, India, it doesn't matter. They all have s- parliaments or something of that type of nature. Uh, I'd say more political system as the rest. Um, uh, what I do like about what he says is, you know, there's these two beasts, and one happens to be political, the other one has to be religious. Uh, I do feel personally that when we talk about 666, yeah, Nero and the Caesars we think the Pontus Maximus yeah, it's the same thing over and over again uh, it's just uh, my package a little differently but we are now looking at that uh, now I argue that the first beast is the pagan Roman Empire and the second beast is the uh, papal Roman Empire, but that doesn't mean I'm right. In the end of the day, when we look at this, there seems to be a consensus is that there's something with this fourth and final beast, it would be an amalgamation of all the, the three ones before it, plus the Roman Empire. We look at what's going on as far as the political system and all of have come out of Western Europe, they certainly are that, an amalgamation of all four empires. Um, But, you know, I still respect the man, what he's doing. I still respect the fact that he's trying. And it's always good to hear another person's point of view. Don't have to agree with it 100%. Don't have to agree with it at all. It's not a salvetic issue. But anyway, the second part now, he'll talk more about the, um, the religious aspect or the second piece, that being a religion, false religion and the false prophet. And uh, I still feel that it is the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but he makes a valid argument that it can be more than just the Roman Catholic Church. So we'll see what he has to say. And then we'll go from there. I still find that he did a good job. I find it brilliant in the sense that the man is trying to think for himself and trying to figure things out. And that the fact that I do know this man has spent many, many, many years trying to figure it out. And it should be, uh, ironically, a sense of comfort to the rest of us who don't have it all figured out. And... And it should be, there's how we deal with the skepticism to those who say they do. That we should challenge them, should question, you know, the priests, the priest class, we should question anybody's authority when they comes to these things. And, you know, demonstrate the proof to us that they're saying it is the truth. Now, as far as the seven hills, I mean, to me, it's clear as day that they're talking about Rome. Does he have to accept that? No, he doesn't. And could it be something more than Rome? There is still that potential, that possibility. And so, anyways, we'll check this out. Listen to the second part now. <laughs>
0: So beast fighting against the church Able to overcome them briefly At the end of church history But not permanently Because they rise from the dead And are ascended into heaven in, In the rapture eventually The beast becomes the object of worship To everybody in the world Except those who worship Christ and that's what we read in verse eight. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If uh, you have not been, in, if you're not a follower of Christ, in other words, if you're not in His book of life, if you're not worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping the state. But you know it or not. Now most people in modern times don't bow down to images of the state like they did in Roman times, but people do still have their loyalty primarily to the state. I mean, patriotism is the religion of people who have no other religion. How do I know that? Because they will die for the state. Many people would never die for Jesus, but they die for the country. In fact, it's considered to be heroic. In fact, even the churches are very proud of people who go out and fight and die for their country. And uh, perhaps they'd be just as happy with someone who goes out and fights and dies uh, on the mission field But, but it's interesting that uh, we, we, we all make heroes Of people who go and fight For the country And the country is what? The country is the state Now of course the country is us The citizens too And that's why we're so happy That there's some people out there defending us but No wonder I mean we can't really be blamed for being happy That there's someone out defending us from bad people The Bible says God has ordained the state to do that but in Revelation, the state that God has ordained becomes an object of worship and a tool of faith in in, uh, competition with Christ. And we see this, for example, by the fact that ultimately people are given a number on their forehead or their hand, which is uh, mimicking the Roman practice, which can be well established. I I heard preachers say this for years before I looked it up to make sure it was right. I got tired of trusting creatures. When well, they don't, we were in the Roman days, they did this or that. You know, I think, well, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I'm to check that out, you know. I, I've learned not to trust creatures. Uh, and I would uh, encourage you not to trust the neighbors. You can do your own research about this. So I did that, I looked it up. You can find plenty of verification of this on the internet from historical uh, secular uh, things about the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, a slave who ran away and was captured again, and the return to his master would be branded on his forehead or on his hand with, like, the, the owner's brand or name, like cattle are branded. The forehead and the hand were particularly the parts of the body of church because they are the parts the least likely to be concealed in public. The hand is rarely covered in public, and the forehead, likewise. Therefore, at a glance, these people could be identified as slaves and of whose the slaves they were. By the brand upon them. That's the imagery used here. The beasts, his servants, his slaves, as it were, bear his brand on their head and on their hand. And that is in contrast with if you look at verse chapter 14, verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. These once were sealed. They received the seal of God on their forehead back in chapter 7. And now it's going to be the name of their father. The name of the lamb's father is on their forehead. So you've got all people have somebody's name on you. have got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you've got to serve somebody. You're somebody's slave. You either have the devil's brand on you or you've got God's brand on you because you're somebody's servant. Now this is figurative of course because Christians don't literally have tattoos on their heads or Computer chips under the skin or anything like that to have the father's name on it. Although people try to make this some kind of a, a, a modern technological thing, uh, you probably have heard people say that the Bible teaches there's going to be a one world monetary system without money, it's going to be a cashless society. That's been said as long as it has been dispensationalists, I suppose. Where do they get that? Well, those who don't have the mark of the beast, which all cannot buy or sell. And that's the whole case for a cashless society that's ever found in the Bible. Those who do not take the mark of the beast cannot buy or sell. Now, futurists often dispensationalists usually believe that this mark of the beast is literally something put on your body, which is used for business transactions, for purchases and such. And it replaces cash. When I was a teenager, the prospect teacher said it's a laser tattoo it'll be a credit number laser tattooed on your hand or forehead so when you go to a store instead of using money or even a credit card you just scan your hand under the black light and it'll and it'll uh you know debit your account so it's just like using a credit card but it's built in well in those days laser tattoos were high tech nowadays nobody talked about laser tattoos or black lights that was hippie stuff black lights but but nowadays we got tech sexier technology. We've got computer chips that can be put under the skin or on the forehead. And so every every few days, I receive someone forwarding me something in the email about how uh, this is being uh, planned already. There's this RFD, it's RFD they call it chips that are uh, what radio frequency, frequency we'll something. And I anyway, these chips. They say it's kind of got to go into your hand or your forehead because that's the best place. Or something recharging the battery or something like that and that you know you're going to use they're going to use that how they're going to use a chip it's not entirely clear I guess scanning and they always give examples of how you know there's this company in Florida that is already giving such chips to animals pets and so forth because it helps you to locate them and and they're going to put all our medical records on a chip and put it on us and, and this is the mark of the beast well so far I don't see any comparisons between that and the mark of the beast except the claim that it'll be on the hand or the forehead Uh, And the mark of the beast is not about your medical records. The mark of the beast is not about locating you when you get lost. The, the, The mark of the beast is not even necessarily about purchasing things with a credit number. It is true that those who don't have the mark of the beast cannot buy or sell, but it does not mean because they need that mark for the transactions to go through the bank it can easily mean that they cannot buy or sell. That's a specimen of persecution that they are, if they don't conform to the world and to the beast, people will persecute them, ostracize them, boycott them. And this has happened many times in the world, many times in especially oppressive states, uh, which were anti-Christian. There were actually laws made against uh, doing business with Christians, selling or buying from them. Actually, the popes put out some uh, papal bulls in the Middle Ages against the Waldensians. The Waldensians were evangelical Christians who didn't go on with the popes. And uh, they're actual papal bulls that forbade people to buy or sell anything uh, with them. It's a form of persecution, it's a form of uh, boycott. Now, some might say, but why would that particular thing be mentioned if it's not about, you know, cashlessness? Well, you know. Several times people who die for the Lord Are referred to in Revelation They're always referred to as beheaded And yet not all people who die for the Lord are beheaded A lot of people Were beheaded by the Romans the, the Christians who were killed by the Romans Some of them were beheaded, some were fed to lions Some were you know, killed other ways But they're always the ones beheaded for the gospel This is simply Shorthand for saying martyr It's like taking one example of how people are martyred And having a stand for all kinds of martyrdom Anyone who's beheaded for Christ is, you know, has certain things said about them. Well, what about the person who is stabbed? Or burned or fed to lives? But he doesn't get the same privilege as so someone beheaded? Obviously, that's nonsense. The ones who are beheaded simply stand for people who are martyred. The ones who are persecuted by boycott simply stand for the larger category of general ostracism and boycott and persecution of them as a class because they don't conform to what the rest of the world is agreeing to, namely the mark of the beast. But what is the mark of the beast then? Well, it's on the hand and the forehead. What does that tell us? Well, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter six. Deuteronomy six. It says in verse six and following. verse 9 and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way when you lie down and when you go rise up you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates now when it says the law shall be bound to your hands as a sign on your hand and between your eyes on your forehead, in other words, Jewish people, some Jewish people have taken this quite literally. They they make what they call phylacteries, a little leather box or pouch, and they put little scroll pieces, little little scriptures written on paper or parchment, and they put them in these little pouches and they bind them with strings around the head. Maybe uh, you've seen this in pictures of Israeli Jews Some of them have the phylacteries uh, like, a, like a cylindrical uh, little thing Coming out from the front of their head and, and a strap around it They're binding the law to their forehead Between their eyes that's, They have straps of the law there They do it on their hands too That's what phylacteries are But I don't believe that this is what God had in mind it's, That's rather a wooden literalism uh, bind the law to your hands as a sign, and between your eyes. Uh, I think it's more reasonable to assume that what he's saying is, I want your hands and your full attention to be on my law. I want your hands to govern your works, your hands are your works, your, your your between your eyes for your feet on your thoughts. That your thoughts and your actions, your thoughts and your works, will be. Governed by my laws And that will be a sign to people When they see you acting and thinking like me Like God When you see that my words And my revelation and my law Are governing the way you think And the way you act That will be a sign to people And I believe that when the beast's mark Is on the hand of the forehead It has a similar meaning These people think and act Like the beast Christians don't. They think like their father. They have their father's name on their forehead. And just as a brand of a master on a slave's forehead would immediately give away whose slave he was, so the behavior and thoughts of Christians should give away immediately whose, whose servant they are. And likewise, those who serve the beast, their thoughts and their actions differ significantly from those of the believers, and that gives them away too. In other words, when people see how you act and how you think, they should know instantly whose Servant, you are. If you look at Romans chapter 6, in, in verse 15, Paul asks this question and answers it. Romans six fifteen, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. He says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey you are that one's slaves, whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. And it says is, you're either obeying sin or you're obeying righteousness. And whoever you're obeying is your master. Whoever you yield yourself to, that's the person you're that servant of that person. Anyone can tell whose servant you are. What do you mean, can we sin because we're under grace? Are you under grace or are you under sin? Who are you serving? Are are your actions sinful? Then you're serving sin. You're not under grace. You're under sin. You're you're a slave of sin. You can tell by who you're obeying. Who's your master, he says. And so also in this picturesque way, using imagery, which I think the Roman world would understand, perhaps more intuitively than we would, Revelation is saying there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are Who are the servants of God These have God's name on their forehead And then there are those who are the servants of the system The Satanic system Their loyalty is to the beast Now we're later going to find that the woman Who I would identify with Jerusalem Most people do not But I think the woman who's the harlot is Jerusalem Is riding on the beast Now you might think Well the Romans and the Jews They didn't have a cozy relationship They hated each other Well, that may be true, but when it came to choosing between Jesus and the Romans, the Jews of his time said, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate said, what, shall I crucify your king? This is the king of the Jews. They said, we don't have any king except Caesar. He's our king. Well, they hated Caesar just as much as they hated Jesus, but, well, maybe not quite as much. They'd rather avow Caesar as their king than Jesus. And this was the Jews who hated Caesar. So, I mean, when it comes down to it, you have to serve somebody. You can have someone who's going to be your king. Your ultimate loyalty is going to be to one party or another. And it's either Jesus or it's going to be really pretty much the state in all likelihood. And so, people, their behavior, their thoughts are like a mark. It's like a giveaway, whose servant they are. Like a servant with a, a mark on his forehead walking through the streets of Rome. At a glance, they could see who his master was. It's like it's advertised all over his face. It's written all over his face his hands. And so also, who your master is is written all over your face and your hands. That is, it's written in, your, in the way the thoughts you express and the, and the way you behave. And I believe that this is the contrast that we see at the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of 14. Now, what about that second piece? We'll just quickly talk about the second piece. There is a contract, of course, between the first beast and the second, and as I said, the second beast is later referred to as the false prophet. Now, a prophet is a religious person, a religious spokesman. There were true prophets, obviously, both in the Old and New Testament, and there are today, but there were also false prophets, the prophets of Baal. There are prophets of all the false gods, and there were people who were falsely prophets of Yahweh. They claimed they spoke in the name of Yahweh, but they weren't really, he had not the sent them, and they ran about being authorized. They were false prophets. Now the Old Testament never uses the expression false prophet. It just uses the word prophet. But you often read about prophets in Old Testament that are indeed false. They just don't call them false prophets. They say a prophet came and said this, or a prophet of Baal, or a prophet of the, of the gods, or other gods. We can tell they're false by the fact that they're lying or that they represent the wrong god, but they're simply called prophets. And then there's prophets of Yahweh that speak the truth. But they're religious, they're religious leaders. But in the in the Old Testament, all nations had their uh, national gods, and therefore the kings always had prophets on their staff. Prophets and kings were basically uh, working together. There was a state religion, and to be loyal to the king required being loyal to the king's god as well. The king was religion. That's why Jezebel, when she made Baal worshipped the official religion of Israel, she went out and killed all the prophets that she could find of Yahweh. It was illegal not to worship Baal. Now, the priests and the prophets of the same religion enforced it. And I believe that just as the first beast represents political power it's manifested whenever and wherever it may be, when Satan is energizing it. Satan is using it, inspiring it. Although God ordained governments to do the right thing, governments almost invariably, unless something holds them back, like a conscience, uh, they invariably become agents of Satan and do Satanic things. Now, you don't very often find a government with a conscience, so more often than not, God's minister becomes Satan's minister. And eventually, begins to persecute Christians and other people who are dissenters to the status quo. But not only is there the state power, which is the sword, there is the state religion. That is, religious loyalty is a a factor, too. I believe that the second beast represents false religion led to the state, which gives Uh, the state, as it were, its divine right to rule in the sight of the people. Now, I said that in Romans chapter 12, Paul did say that the state is ordained by God, but that doesn't mean the state has a divine right to do whatever it wants to do. And that's what states usually, uh, you know, commandeer to themselves. Put a man in power, and if there isn't something like the Constitution preventing it, he's going to become an absolute autocrat. Why? Because he can. Because he can. He controls the armies. You know, if one of the generals comes up and kills him and takes his place, whoever controls the armies can be the boss. And so the state's power is one of force. But some states actually have the hearts of their people on their side. They don't have to force them with the sword because the people are inclined to worship them, inclined to think their country is the greatest country. Think of how it was with Hitler's. Uh, Youth and and the third how many people in Germany thought the German state is God's chosen people and you know to advance the cause of the German race and the German state and the German Fuhrer was worth killing off Jews, Gypsies, Christians, whatever gets in the way whatever the Fuhrer says is bad you got to get rid of those people and it was like a religious fervor for the, for the purer. So also most governments, certainly pagan governments, have had state religions, uh, cults of the emperor. Many of the emperors required that people worship them, and they had, uh, you know, the the priests of their, uh, of their countries requiring it, requiring people to worship them. And so this second beast, it has two horns like a lamb, which of course, the lamb in Revelation being Christ, suggests that this beast mimics or is a counterfeit for Christ or for Christianity. Christ is the, the one that is followed by those who are the true followers. That's what it says in chapter 14 about the 144,000. Verse 4, it says, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. But this, this guy looks a little like a lamb, too. He's got horns like a lamb. But when he speaks he doesn't sound like a lamb. He sounds like a dragon he Sounds like the devil Reminds me of the Aesop's fable Where a donkey found a, a lion's skin And somehow he managed to put the lion's skin on top of himself And walk around and got a lot of respect That donkeys don't usually get Because at first glance everybody was a lion And all the, all the creatures that used to mock him as a donkey Now were giving him a lion's birth And deferring to him and treating him like a king Still pretty good, he's still in his oats, you might say He decided to let out a roar of triumph But as soon as he did, he found like a donkey again And everyone knew that he wasn't a lion He looked like a lion, but he talked like a donkey Because inside, that's what he really was He had a costume on Jesus said, beware, false prophets Why? He says they have sheep's clothing on But inwardly, they are ravening wolves this false prophet has sheep's horns on. He's got, he's dressed up like a sheep. He's got lamb's horns on him. But inside he's a rabbing wolf or more like a dragon. When he speaks, it makes it clear what's really in there. And you can discern by what they say. You know, Moses gave um, a test in Deuteronomy 13 how to know a false prophet. And it was interesting because it corresponds so much to this particular false prophet. That is, if people would follow Deuteronomy 13, they would never be deceived by this particular false prophet in Revelation 13. Because Deuteronomy 13 says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. Now, we haven't dwelt on it, yet, we will, but this false prophet in Revelation 13 gives signs and wonders. He works wonders and miracles in the sight of the first beast, and everyone marvels. Well, here's a false prophet, or a prophet, who gives you a sign or a wonder. Deuteronomy 13, verse 2 says, and that sign or wonder comes to pass. So this is a real, um, it really works. It gives you a sign, and it really happens. Okay, looks like it's the real deal, right? Of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods, which you've not known, and let us serve them. Oh, he's speaking like a dragon. He's, he's a, he calls himself a prophet. He does signs and wonders, such as a real prophet might be able to do, but when he talks, something else comes out. He's saying, let's go worship other gods, not God. And we're told verse three, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. So false religion, Often has many things about it that resemble true, real faith, real Christianity, real religion, the real worship of God. Sometimes religions seem to have divine power associated with them. There are miracles worked in Hinduism and in Buddhism and in Voodoo and in many other false religions. I say miracles, it could be magic, it could be, you know, something, it's something supernatural. It's demonic But the point is it, it impresses the people Who can't explain the supernatural Any other way than it must be God or the gods or something and They don't realize it could be demons These beasts are more Acting in the power of Satan And it says Of this uh, Of this particular second beast In Revelation 13:30, He performs great signs So that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth In the sight of men That's what the two witnesses were able to do So he's mimicking the Supernatural power of the church And then we have this And he deceives those who dwell on the earth By those signs Which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast Telling those who dwell on the earth To make an image To the beast Who was wounded by the sword and lived And he was granted Power to give breath To the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So one of the signs that he can do is create an image of the beast and give it life. Make it seem to have spirit. Give a spiritual dimension to the political system. Imbue it with a, a religious, spiritual essence. That being patriotic is the same thing as being spiritual or being you know, religious in, in this mindset. Uh, basically, the deification of the state. It says he makes an image of the beast. That means he, turns the, he makes an idol out of the state. Many people have made an idol of the state. They will sacrifice for the state, but they will never sacrifice for God or for Christ. They sacrifice their children, send them off to war, but they won't send them to mission field. Making sacrifices for the state, you would make for God, suggests that you've made an idol of the state. you put it above God. What is that? Or an idol. And then, basically, to enable the state through the state religion to enforce worship of the state, as if it gives the image life. We've got to remember, Revelation's got a lot of sensational imagery here that has, you know, spiritual meanings behind it. We uh, if, you, if you take this literally, then, well, then you're dispensational, you're welcome too. but I personally don't think that taking any of this literally is what's intended. We've got imagery from Daniel, we've got imagery from other parts of the Bible, Deuteronomy, and so forth, and I think that we're supposed to get an idea, not, not uh, get a picture, and say, this is a picture of what's going to happen. It's rather a description of how the, the state has It's religious branch It's false religions That cause and encourage devotion to the state And they give They make the state into an idol To be worshipped And uh, almost like a a living thing A living God To be worshipped Giving life, giving breath, giving spirit To the institution So that people Don't think it's incongruous To to put, put the state in the place of God And so, at any time, in any place, Satan may be using false religions and their adherence to states that are anti-Christian to help him in his war against the saints. Remember, at the end of chapter 12, the dragon was furious with the woman and went to make war with her, and when chapter 12 ended, the, uh, the, the war was going on. In chapter 13, of course, there's no chapter divisions in the original. It just, we have, as he's warring against the woman, he calls up these these confederates, the two beasts. Satan uses state power and false religious power in his warfare against the church. The state power is the power of the sword. The, The religious beast is the power of deception. And these are the two things that the church has had to face from the very beginning. Persecution of the sword and heresy. And we saw that earlier too When the dragon spewed water out of his mouth In chapter 12 and verse 15 Out of the dragon's mouth comes deception And a flood of deception, heresies But the church survives it. But some don't Some individuals don't The true church survives The true church remains faithful to Christ He's still their king They say we must obey God rather than men you see, the early church, as you may know, when ordered to burn incense as an act of worship to the season, would, would not do so. And that's why they were afraid of the lions. That's why they were burned. They would not deify the state, which everybody else is doing. And everyone could see the Christians were different, and that caused them to be ostracized. They were not, you know, admired for being different. They were feared, you know, held in suspicion. When there were natural disasters, the Roman authorities said it was the Christians that caused it because they had angered the gods by not worshipping the gods. When Rome was burned, almost certainly by Nero himself, he said the Christians did it. The Christians became the brunt and the scapegoat for just about everything that went wrong and, uh, and therefore were persecuted, and that has continued to be the case. We have lived in a very unusual time in the past 200 years where a nation was established on a, you know, on the idea of religious liberty, where first of all Christians could not, or were not supposed to be able to be persecuted for their faith. Furthermore, it was a country that was very largely influenced by Christian founders and Christian thinkers, so that we have lived in a very charmed bubble in this part of the world. And many other parts of the world have gone the way that America did, following America, but then now they're going back again, and America's going back again, too. We've had our, maybe we've had our day. Maybe we had our, our opportunity to sort of be free from the beast for a little while, the only people in history who ever were, and only for a short time. We've gotten spoiled. Now persecution comes. I mean, I've heard people say, you know, if there's not a pre-tribulation rapture, I don't know if I want to be a Christian. Heard say that. I've heard people say that more than once. When, they say, when I say I don't believe in preacher of they say, Well, I don't want to be a Christian then if there's no preacher of rapture. My answer is, Well, probably you're not a Christian then. Maybe you got to be a You don't want to be a Christian, you're not. If you won't lay down your life, Jesus said, you aren't his disciple. If you don't come to me and hate your father, mother, wife, children, and your own life, also, you can't be my disciple. If you don't take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Well, if you're not willing to suffer for Christ, then you're not taking up any cross, you don't hate your life, and you're not doing what Jesus said that it takes to be a disciple. You're not a disciple. <clears throat> being a Christian always meant being willing to die for your faith. And for most times in history, in most places, and including me at this time, that's exactly what people know it costs them. That they count that cost because where they live, that's what happens. So, or at least the Christians are in danger of having it happen to them. And we have lived in a world, a part of the world, and a part of history that's been very unusual in that respect, that we've actually had some unusual freedom. You may have heard there's some of those being taken away as we speak. Just a few months ago, a, a, a man, a father, homeschooling dad in Arizona, was put in jail for 60 days because he held meetings in his home, Christian meetings. And he wasn't bothering anybody else. The meetings were not noisy. He had, like, several acres, I believe, and people worked on his property, not on the street, there was nothing about his his many of his neighbors. And because he was having Christian meetings, worshiping God, he was put in jail. That's been in the news a fair bit. And it's just the most recent of many. I've heard a case like that since the 70s. But the government is not in favor of Jesus. Unless you have people in the government who are themselves Christians, that hasn't been the case probably for a very long time in this country. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if any of our presidents in the past two centuries have been Christians. I don't know. I mean, I know John Adams was a Christian. I mean, there's a few. If you go way back, go you know, way back, I think there were a few Christians in there. Maybe there have been some in modern times. I'm not aware of because I don't know the religious convictions of each of But from what I understand. Uh, to get into the presidency, so you kind of have to make some compromises that Christians usually, if they have consciences, don't do. That's what Chuck Colson said, and he was pretty up there in the Nixon administration. And Colson said, you can't really become a president without lying, without compromising. Uh, you pretty much have to, you know, be ruthless. You have to not be merciful. You, you really can't be a very good Christian, he said, and, and really become a president. Just the way the system is So even here Where the persecution is not great Or has not been in recent times It still isn't a Christian state And if we think it is We're just probably trying to lull ourselves to sleep And think it's going to be okay after all But the beast in scripture Is I believe Still alive today In different forms You'll certainly find him if you go to North Korea Or China or Cuba or any Muslim country, or probably many other kinds of countries too. And you might even find him here. You know, uh, if not so much now, maybe not too long from now. In any case, he's given power and authority to make war against the saints, and that's what he's doing. He's he's an arm of Satan's warfare against the church. It's the political arm. There's also a religious arm. And that's what John sees here, I believe. And this then brings us to the end of the portion of Revelation that I would called the little book, which was introduced to us in uh, chapter 10. And we, we will read no more in Revelation about this three and a half years. It was first mentioned in chapter 11. It continued to be mentioned through chapters 12 and 13. And now that season is apparently done. And when we turn back to chapter 14, In my opinion, we're looking back now at the main theme of the book. We've we've jumped outside the parenthesis in the middle, back into the main subject matter, which has to do with the uh, judgment of God on apostate Jerusalem in AD 70. And I will, of course, defend that thesis as we come to the proper places next time.
1: All right. Well, a few comments on my end. Uh, well, the last comment that he said about Jerusalem and that being <laughs> uh, something connected with the harlots, and uh, I don't know about that one. do they qualify. I don't know about that one. from my teachings and my learning, you know, we talk about the... Uh, the harlot, uh, the woman. We're talking about Roman Catholic Church. We're talking about Rome and the seven, you know, hills type of thing. But then again, I could be wrong. I'm willing to look at the other side. Either it's going to strengthen my understanding and conviction that it is Rome or not. What I do like, though, is about his argument that he has about the marriage of church and state, and that's what ultimately the message is in Revelation 13 is about. Um, and that the primary figure that, uh, that I see, primary institution, the beast system, political system, is the Roman system that most of us in this world are under, whether we realize it or not. And then the second beast you know, the, the, the two-horned lamb that speaks like a dragon uh, is a false religion. And certainly the granddaddy of Ma, the Roman Catholic Church, has have dealt with, you know, and uh, humanity has dealt with for a thousand plus years. But you know what? It's more than this, that institution. It's his daughter churches that are as well. She's just as much guilty Behaving like uh, you know, know, presenting himself as a, a lamb, like but speaking as a dragon, and that is true. If one is really honest, we can look at the many of the Protestant quote churches who have embraced war after war after war after war, and put the state before God. This is the truth. Um. Then, I mean, if you look at Islam, you look at uh, all the other major religions; they've all been guilty of that. Then, of course, you look at the, the religion, of the state, the religion of the state. Um, and basically, Satan, like you said, Satan used these two systems, these two beast systems: uh, the political, worldly political systems, and religion, false religion. To his advantage, to oppress and to persecute and the, the saints; those were true followers of Christ. It's very valid. Now, the details—you know, maybe do I agree with a lot of things he's saying? No, do I? A little disappointed that he didn't uh, focus a more on Rome. Yeah, but that's that's based on my own understanding and my own learning. I also understand his circumstances and trying to present the message in a way that reaches the most people. And there's a delicate line. And there there's a need for people like Steve new um are not so hardcore, like someone like myself who goes to it's straight to the juggler and says the and it's, it's the papacy. Um and you don't to agree with me with that, but I, I'm, I'm confident that he has bridged more people than I have about this message because of his approach. Um, and that's just the reality. That's the truth of the matter. And so I think, uh, you know, like for me, listening to a guy like Tom Fress, because of my personality, I am, that was more effective than probably listening to him. Steve, the reason why I'm listening to him uh, is because I have come through this journey realizing that I need to listen to more than just one voice to have a stronger a clearer picture the clearest picture that we can possibly get Um, it's very convenient to put all the blame on Rome But the truth of the matter is, uh, there have been many of us who have been guilty of worshiping the beast, uh, carrying the mark the beast, and not putting God first, not putting him in our hearts and our minds first. And in this show, in particular, we've been guilty of that. We have spent more time talking about the Antichrist than about Christ. And it is a, an issue. It's an important issue. As in fact, so it's the most important issue: is are we going to be true followers of Christ, or are we going to be part-timers? And you know, I can't judge man, you know, by his intentions and how devout he is to Christ simply because of the conversations that he has alone with me or you can with you know based on the show just should judge me um, but the fruits that's what we judge and am I speaking enough about the true gospel of Jesus Christ it's been bugging me for months now <coughs> because I really uh and people argue with me and say that you know otherwise or that I'm wrong about what I'm saying but um you know really am I speaking spending, how much time am I actually spending speaking the gospel, the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, which ultimately is the answer to all of this, the answer of any importance. Because uh, we can know everything we want about who the Antichrist is. We can know everything we need about the first beast and the second beast in Revelation 13. But uh, if we really don't comprehend uh, who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, then we've completely failed. And my own personal experience with others in the show and myself is that we've been a terrible example of actually being Christians. And so although I can't do anything about anybody else, I can do something about me, hopefully with the grace of God and the mercy of God, he can help me to do that if he's willing. And I pray that he is. But, uh, yeah, so we talk about the mark of the beast, too, and you know, are we under the mark of the beast? Well, I, I like his simple explanation. Is Christ in your heart and your mind? If Christ is in your heart and your mind, you're not under the mark of the beast. It has nothing to do with the chip. It has nothing to do with um, the things of this world. It's a spiritual matter. A spiritual matter is, do you have Christ in your heart and your mind? Do you put Christ first? Or will you be one of these guys the next time the saber arrives and he starts up, which they're doing, they're going to keep on doing and, you know, will you join the military and go fight Iran? And, of course, then you're under the mark of the beast. That's the reality. You put the state before Christ. Is Netanyahu, Bibi, when he came a couple weeks ago, and then now this pope coming in September, all prepping us up, uh, and looking at that church and state again, to get get motivated to fight their next war? Is that war going to be in this country? We don't know. I imagine at some point there will be in this country if enough people wake up and say, no, we don't want to play your games anymore.
0: And then again,
1: you know, what are you going to do? So, as he pointed out, uh, since the apostles, uh, well, since Christ, dying on the cross, there's been nothing but persecution and tribulation. Uh, this stance on this partial... Uh, preterism is interesting too because he's basically he's arguing and saying that the revelation was written earlier than what most people consider it to be is he right about that you know you and I can say no he's not it's just, it, was 19, it was 96 AD when it was written but if we're real honest about it we really don't know and based on science and how difficult it is, is to date back there to a precise date We have no way of absolutely 100% proving that was written in 96 AD. We don't. And as far as dating goes, I know this firsthand experience going to school uh, for environmental science and management, that I know firsthand experience how um, difficult it is actually to date anything through. Whether it's carbon dating or if it's some you know, nuclear isotope, Um, it's really virtually impossible without uh, written documentation prior to actually doing the research or testing to get any kind of you know answer. And even then, it's based on a bias, and that is, you know, the 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 pre, the pre, uh, or the perceived already date. So, say you had a book that was, you know, the date on it was copyright was 1610. Well, through doing the process of dating, whether it was uh, carbon dating or some kind of nuclear, you will come to you. You will do uh, numerous tests. Like, look, say it's, imagine it's like a, a dartboard, and you're throwing a bunch of darts, hoping to get a consistency in one location. And then they're making some kind of hypothesis or a determination that's, you know, what is accurate, this is the closest to what is accurate. And say all the darts end up uh, in the bullseye, and then you say, well, that's, that's, that must be the proper date. But you've already had the, 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 the dartboard, if you will. You've already had the bullseye. You already know what the bullseye is. And you're just keeping throwing darts until you hit it. And then throw enough of them to justify it. It's the same idea when you're dating. So you have this book that was written in 1610. Oh, say 1611, I'll like send King James Bible. Uh, You're basing everything on what somebody already told you. If you don't have that, it really is shooting in the dark. You're just making up numbers and making up a date. That's why you see over and over again, they can't consistently figure out when they date something. It's it's either 100,000 years or 100 million years or 50 million years or 10 billion years. They're making up numbers. So if we go back to when John wrote Revelation, we have to be honest in the fact that we really don't know 100% for sure the date in which it was written. It could be prior to 70 AD. It could have been after. Because of that, we have to give someone like Steve... Greg. Latitude is a partial preterist. I mean, if he was a full, flat-out preterist, I wouldn't give him any credence. Uh, Concerning when the revelations. And if it is true what he's saying that most revelations is concerning what happened in 70 AD, that changes the picture, doesn't it? At this stage, I don't agree with that. But it's something to put in the back of my head, in the back of my mind, and as I do my research, I'll figure out, you know, putting the pieces together, whether it's true or not. Uh, it's real easy to make the mistake, as I've done many times, to once I've heard something and I get enough pieces, and, and other people are regurgitating or saying the same thing, that somehow I'm actually, I know the truth. And we all get guilty of this. It happens to us all the time. And um, so we have to take everything with a bit of, you know, as far as our information, historical information, and the data that we have, with a bit of great assault, uh, and that you know we can't just say at flat out, "This is the way it is." Um, I, you know, there's, there's, then there's faith. There's faith in Jesus Christ. I believe in the story of Jesus Christ. I believe who He says He is, and um, and you know that is that is based on faith yeah, saved by grace and faith in Jesus Christ is what my whole belief system my faith is that's where my hope is and but somebody else could come to me and say Mike you will prove it and I can't 100% to you I can only say, how much do you want to know this? If you really want to know this, here's a Bible. We'll start reading it. And are you willing to get it on your knees and sincerely pray to find out if it's true or not? <laughs> and then they talk about how the Spirit of God will start working in you, and you'll start developing faith, and then you start believing, and then you'll know within you the truth of it. But it's one of those things that a man can't, no matter how hard we try, we still have that capacity to prove it flat out scientifically, 100%, undeniable. Um, I think God wants it that way. I really do. I believe God wants us to believe it and, and have faith in him that believe that Jesus Christ did do what he did, and he is who he is. And that he will bless us and reward us for eternity for that. Now, people might say that that's a crutch. And there's no crutch for me. And I don't know anybody who is a true believer in Jesus Christ that finds it a crutch. You know what I mean? And Jesus said it wouldn't be. Um... And that's where it comes back down to this safe by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and why it's so important. Thank goodness Jesus did that. In itself, if a man is honest, that is enough. If I had to save myself through my own works, I might as well throw it in the towel because I know I can't do it. And I know no one else ever has done it. Is that negative? No, it's not. Negative It's the truth. No one's ever done it. No one's been able to commit, uh, fulfill completely the mosaic law. No one has. The only one who was able to do that was God Himself, Jesus Christ, (laughs) God in the flesh. You you know, I mean, there's a certain point you just go, "Wow, what am I supposed to do?" So. But anyways, I believe that Steve Gregg is a brother of Christ, and I believe that he's doing the best that he can. I think he's worthy of being listened to about this Revelation 13. I know for a fact that the man has spent time, many, many, many probably days, studying just this one topic alone. He's, and he's trying to be intellectually as honest as he can. Um, I think he might have failed a Uh, Well, I don't think. I I believe that he failed uh, quite a bit when it came to um, uh, Rome's role and all that, Revelation 13. But at least he did mention them. He did mention them as far as the Middle Ages and the... you know, most people don't have a comprehension understanding of for Rome's involvement in World War One and Two and the wars that we've been in and what's going on, and are even able to even recognize, you know, that Rome's connection to this country. That doesn't mean they're not they're not uh, brothers in Christ, and it doesn't mean that their message is wrong. The other thing I don't necessarily Well, let's put it this way. As far as an understanding of the presidents, obviously the man has not spent very much time on the presidents. So, were the early founding fathers of this country Christians? Some say no, some say yes. An awful lot of them were uh, Freemasons and Jesuit trained. This is true. But I imagine there were still men who are truly Christians, as there always is. Um, And as he said today, you know, as far as being a president of the United States and being a Christian, it just doesn't gel. Um, It just can't work. And you have to be a compromised human being. And if you're a true follower of Christ and Christ is working in you, I mean, you're not going to be able to stand it. You're going to hate it. You're going to want to get out. So. But I think, once again, the most important thing that he shared with us is Chapter 13's basic fundamental principle, if you just scratched out the historical stuff, if you just wanted to understand it's what its basis, the basic message that it is, is this unholy marriage between church and state and now it's persecuted God's people throughout the year the the this this time by the Gentiles. So. so anyway with that I think I'm done for this day and uh still feeling really rough, but at least I have enough energy to do a few shows and uh hopefully somebody gets something out of any of this.